Hi, everybody. It's Tara Kerwin and EJ Kerwin with our Relationship Renovation Podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening as always. Yeah, good to be here again. And we are uh, lucky enough to once again have a really interesting person uh, to interview. I'm just loving all of our guest interviews. It's been awesome. It has been. It has been. And so today we're interviewing Dean Anderson, and he's got a an interesting background. I mean, he's in the corporate world. He's been the senior VP of sales at an IT staffing company for like 23 years, which is a you know, we talk a lot about commitments. That's a huge commitment. Huge. He's also written a book, Was That a Red Flag? And we're going to talk a lot about that because that has to do with personal growth and relationships, uh, definitely. He's also, he's a husband and and he's a father of a couple of girls. Is that right, Dean? You have, you have two That's uh, correct, yeah. adult daughters? I've got two daughters. Uh, yeah. My dad said it was payback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How are you? How are you, Dean? How are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on with us. Happy to have you here. Much appreciated. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I guess the uh, place we always like to start with our uh, guests is just, you know, give us kind of your bio. Like, tell us about yourself, your background, uh, w- what you're doing, and what you want to get across to people. Sure. Yeah, you touched a little bit on uh, my career. Um, probably talked a lot less about that on this uh, on this show, but I have been in the staffing world for about twenty five years, twenty three years with the same company. So, yeah, that is a form of commitment, <laughs> I guess you could say. But in my real life, outside of work, I've been in my current relationship now for about eight years, married for five. I've got two daughters, as I mentioned earlier. And I'm also in recovery. Uh, come February 7th of 2022, I'll be sober nine years. Um, wow. Nine interesting years that went by, uh, a lot of growth that went into that. And during that, and because of that, uh, I ended up writing a book that kind of chronicles not only my mistakes that I've made over the course of my lifetime, but some of the relationships I've been in where I was the problem. Sometimes the other person was a problem, but it was based on the red flags that we tend to ignore that come up in relationships early on uh, where we think we can either change somebody or we think that, you know, we can overlook certain things, but it just doesn't work out. And I think we dive into relationships too quickly or a marriage too quickly. And it caused me to write this book, not only because of what I learned in recovery, but because of what I learned over 20 years of um, some good and bad relationships. Right. Uh, but the bad ones taught me a lot. Yeah. So interesting when we uh, have couples that present for counseling, it's usually like they've been seeing red flags for decades, but finally, for some reason, somehow they made it to our office. <laughs> right. And it, a lot of it comes from upbringing. I grew up in a small town and my parents are still married to this day. Um, oh. They might tell you they, they don't have the perfect relationship, but they're still together. Um, and I think that happened a lot in the generations before us. Right. They mm-hmm. powered through it, you know, yep. but they may have waited longer to get into it too. Whereas we dive head first and we get married before we blink. Are you saying that the society we live in is an impulsive society, Dean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah we, Instant gratification. What? I, I can only speak for myself. Yeah. yeah. We talk a lot about with couples about how one of the reasons that you know so many people come to couples counseling now is that the expectations in relationship have changed greatly you know in the last 20 30 40 years from from generations before that we want a lot more out of relationships these days and i i I wonder if that's a part of like when you were talking about you know your book and the red flags like that these red flags are around like 
Well, I mean, tell me, I mean, what are the red flags? What are these things that that you noticed when you kind of got your mind clear that that were important to focus on within relationship? I think if you if we all look at our relationships growing up or maybe, you know, into our 20s or 30s, if we haven't got married yet, we all tend to follow a bit of a pattern. We tend to mm-hmm. date or even marry uh, the same people. It's it's weird. I didn't notice the pattern until I got sober. But what I've noticed is that I, I often dated people that were the opposite of me. And I guess I thought that would kind of balance me out, mm-hmm. um, in which it probably did at the beginning. I think that's kind of what brought the passion or the initial interest into it. Um, but what I found is that there were a lot of red flags that I ignored when I went into these relationships and probably a heck of a lot of red flags they ignored about me. Uh, some of those being that I talk about in the book, chapter two is opposite to track, but do they last? Because I find with me, a lot of those relationships turned into an initial decent relationship that almost broke off into two separate lives because we, we either believed in so many different things or we were so attracted to doing different things that we no longer did as much together. So there's chapters that cover everything from mutual interests, mm-hmm. uh, sexual attraction, raising kids, uh, growing together in all aspects of your life, uh, kind of getting away together. And the biggest one, probably the chapter that I think captures the most interest is communication and, and how that either grows as we grow in a relationship or if it actually falls apart and that's what makes the relationship fall apart. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, you, you sort of alluded to it a couple times that for you, a big shift in your personal growth, in your personal awareness was when you got sober, right? And yeah. so, I mean, I guess one question that like jumps out to me was, whether it's opposites making it work or healthy communication or or navigating intimacy. I mean, from your perspective, were you even capable of working on those things prior to, to getting sober and, and sort of getting your, your head on straight? I don't know. That's a tough question, but know, the best way I can answer it is I did the best I could with what I had. I think that- yeah. Uh, alcohol is one of those things that turns us a bit delusional, especially if we're abusing it, where Mm -hmm. we don't really see fact from the false. Um, We tend to live in this world where it becomes extremely selfish uh, and self-driven. And even though you try the best at your communication, I think what I did was I was always trying to ignore the flaws that I had and always try to change something in them that maybe it shouldn't have changed in them. Maybe that was just the cool nuance of them that I should have loved about them, but I was always trying to change them and not change anything about me. So I feel like a lot of those relationships lacked honesty Mm -hmm. because the, the catalyst to it all was me not being honest about what I was myself or what I wasn't bringing to the table. Yeah. When, when we work with couples where one partner is in recovery and you know that one partner supported them and everything. One of the biggest things was like, how do I see my partner in a different way? Because the alcoholism was such a, they see it as such a selfish place to be. And it's so interesting to see our couples, you know, in the first year of recovery versus five years of recovery. It's like such a difference because it takes a while to build trust within that relationship once sobriety starts. And that there's like a huge, you know, we have this one couple, he's, I think he's like six months now, but he has to take care of himself. He has to work out every day. He has his sponsor. He goes to AA meetings. They have a new baby. She's like, what, what about me? Like I have been doing this for like 
freaking, I've been supporting you. Like I need to work out. And he's like, but my recovery comes first because if it doesn't, I don't take care of me. I can't take care of us. And like, we're just trying to help them manage. Like how do they, when he's still focused on recovery in this first year, like it's going to be really hard for her to feel like she's a priority, you know? So it's just interesting to see all the different kind of Yeah. I think that's the toughest part, especially if it's a relationship that you believe you want to work on and keep Um, after your significant other gets sober. But I think that it's a selfless program, but it's also selfish in the sense that if you don't put your sobriety first, you lose the rest. Exactly. And that's the best way to look at it. So usually if a wife or husband or whatever is trying to deal with that, I think the best thing for a person getting sober, and a lot of people told me this who had been in sobriety a long time, is that yes, we have to put sobriety first and we have to do the 12 step program that we may be in or whatever program they're in. And we have to do the things that keep us sober, whether that's adding, you know, working out and fitness and all that kind of thing. I think you also have to set a time to spend time with your family because you were ignoring those parts and being absent. Even if you were there as an alcoholic, you were often absent. So it's, you have to carve out some time to work on you as a couple as well. And I think that gets ignored a lot because depending on how waterlogged people were after getting sober, it does take them a while to figure out the false from the real and where they're the issue. Because a lot of times in these 12-step programs, it's teaching the alcoholic where they were the problem. So until they get to that area of of the step process or the program, they may not be seeing themselves as the problem. And that's, that's hard to believe, right? Like you've seen them from an outside view being an absolute head case and just, you know, filling people full of resentments and fears and anxieties and all of this, but they don't see it yet until the mirror is turned on them. So yes, the significant other has to be rather patient. um, But if they do have that patience, uh, it's an amazing thing. If they can get through that period of time, they will connect and it will be better than their relationship has ever been. I think, I think one of the, one of the challenges for, for someone whether it's in relationship or out of relationship around the, their relationship with alcohol is trying to figure out like, is it a problem? You know, and there, cause there's so many, you know, there's so many gradations of the effect alcohol is having on your life. I mean, there's certainly like right. just where it's hard to hide from the fact that you're, you've hit rock bottom, but then there's, there's plenty of space between there and someone who might have a healthy relationship. And so for you, like, what was the, the wake up call right. or the thing for you that you were like, you know what, I, I have to address this in a, in a completely different manner. I mean, I had, I was so far gone in the end. Um, I had gone through a divorce and a lot of alcoholics will blame their relationship, at least a tiny bit on the amount that they're drinking. What I found out very quickly is that once I got divorced, the drinking actually increased. Mm-hmm. It's like I had no accountability whatsoever. So it just went down a really, really bad rabbit hole and didn't come back. And I mean, it, it, it got to the point where I ended up in a, in a hospital with almost a 0. 0.40 alcohol, blood alcohol wow. level and didn't remember even getting there, you know? Wow. So it was a health issue with me. It was a situation of me about to lose everything from my house to my job to um, the relationship with my kids because I had given primary custody to my ex at the time. And um, there was just a lot of things where if I sat down and looked at them all, everything was falling apart. But a lot of times it's hard for people to even 
accept that they're an alcoholic because they're still functional. Like at that point in time, or at least just prior to that, I still had a job. I never had a DUI. I didn't have any legal troubles. It was, you know, from the outside, I would look pretty normal. But, you know, we kind of almost pull a Jeff Foxworthy type joke on people who first come in and we just give them examples of why you might be an alcoholic. Like for instance, you know, if you, if you have one drink and then you drink everything left that's in the house, you're probably an alcoholic. If mm-hmm. you, if you have more than one <laughs> liquor store, cause you're embarrassed that the owner might think you're an alcoholic, you might be an alcoholic. <laughs> I like you know? that Jeff Foxworthy style. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's jokes like that. It, it, that I find I that if you're, uh, if an, when an alcoholic meets another alcoholic and you can get that person to laugh and point out some of the mm-hmm. realities of what they think is normal, but really isn't normal to the person who doesn't drink too much or isn't an alcoholic. It starts to become readily aware to them that, oh my gosh, you and I did or do the same things when it comes to alcohol. And I really have to face it because it's becoming an issue that is ruining my life. And what I'm very grateful about is that in this day and age, alcoholics are not hitting, not often as much, the rock bottom that some of the old timers did because mm-hmm. somebody put something in front of them or they got a DUI or the court appointed them to yeah. go to certain meetings, or whatever. That has been the change that I think was necessary to have people see it earlier. Yeah. So now you have like sort of the A and B of being in a relationship where you were, where you were using and now in a relationship, cause, cause no matter what relationship is kind of tough, right? You know, what's different about the way you show up and the way you, you know, how, how you function within a relationship now compared to then? Uh, I think the word honesty comes to mind. I think that communication and honesty is everything in a relationship and alcoholics are unbelievably good liars. Um, they, they just, 20 years for me, 25 years of drinking, uh, I became pretty good at it, whether it was hiding it or whether that meant I was omitting the truth. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, just the dishonesty that was involved mm-hmm. of trying to hide things or whatever just came to the surface and you never really honest about anything. So I will say this, alcoholism is a progressive disease and it, and it always tends to grow. Uh, but that same thing can be said about sobriety and honesty. Mm-hmm. I find that when you first get honest, it's almost... I mean, it's like doing a 180. Like you find yourself at the end of your drinking lying about every single thing in your life. Whereas when you when you come into a program of recovery, you start having to be forced to almost tell the truth about everything. And I think you have to do that. You have to make sure that you, you catch yourself every day. Uh, there's a certain uh, part of a, a step program that your nightly inventory that you do is to go through the questions of whether or not you were dishonest, resentful, or fearful about something. And so you have to call yourself out every night and be like, wow, I kind of told a non-truth about something today and I'm sober. Like I really have to keep working at this. So in my relationship now with my wife, it does help that she's also in the program so she gets it. But I think the honesty factor is that we communicate about everything, everything that's even uncomfortable. Because most of the time in an alcoholic's life or probably in a normal person's life is that what somebody says to you is often misconstrued mm-hmm. or what the perception was wrong and you thought they meant something else. Yes. So why not ask the question up front as soon as they say it, what they actually meant? Because even what they were saying may have been coming from a place of hurt where they didn't even really mean what they were saying. So if you bring the honesty out on the table and ask what that meant and where you were going with it, you'll probably solve the problem before you ever have it. Can I ask how your because a lot of times, right, alcohol is used as a medicator, some people use it more moderately. Some people just try to numb out all the time with it. 
What was right. your experience like when, when like you didn't have this medicator or this numbing substance to, I mean, cause you said what you drank for 25 years, right? Like what was that process like to just be with emotions? It's very interesting uh, because, you know, probably about 30 days in when the fog clears, it's like every light bulb went on in your body, including your brain. So all emotions come back. I think it's different for every single person because for some people, if they had past trauma in their lives, that may come back or they may, you know, whatever it may be individually. For me, I never drank because I was sad or, or, or abused or anything like that. I drank because I liked the effect. Right. Um, alcohol did exactly what I asked it to until it didn't. Right. Um, and that's kind of the way alcohol was with me. So when I came out of it, I wouldn't say I embraced the feelings, but I welcomed some of them back. Some of them, yes. whether it be loneliness or sadness, you just had to talk your way through it, whether it was talking to somebody else that's an alcoholic because they'll understand better than most people, or you try to come to the root of where that emotion is coming from, just like you probably would in therapy, I suppose. But in, the, in a program you kind of recovery, you're kind of trying to figure out, all right, what's the root of that? And what made me drink? Was it due to that emotion that I experienced in the past? And you try to figure out where that fear came from and you try to overcome it by either talking through it or talking to the person that that fear or resentment is about and trying to also work through it. And I think those emotions tend to dissolve the longer you're sober and the more you work through some of your past or your current problems. And it becomes a piece that I've never experienced in my life. I think even as a child, I think now I'm in a spot now where nothing really bothers me. You know, I mean, most the, one of the most controversial statements in recovery is someone else's opinion of you is none of your business. <laughs> Ask me that 10 years ago, I'd probably have some choice words for you, but now mm -hmm. I understand it. You know, it's because how we perceive everything is, is amazing. And, and once you, you live in a, in a state of honesty, it's hard not to accept those feelings for what they are and just realize that they're just feelings. It's not something that's not even reality. So, so now that you're, you're in relationship and your eyes are wide open and you're saying like, hey, now I'm, I'm willing to be honest, what are the things that are still difficult to be honest about? Because that's a big thing that we work with couples around is like there's certain things that couples just avoid or, or, or there's certain things when they do talk about it, it always goes sideways. Like for you, what are, what are the things that are, that are still like difficult to be honest about? I think for, for us, I should speak of my, you know, relationship only, but we may have had some things at the beginning, but oddly enough, it was mostly insecurities of ourselves, meaning we did the best we could to raise our kids. Oddly enough, we were both alcoholics, but we also mm. in some ways single-handedly raised our kids. Um, that, that's another whole story, but um, <laughs> so we thought our way was best in, in a sense. So we were a blended family coming together. So the only arguments I've ever had with my current wife were about how we raised our kids. And we realized that we don't need to change each other or how we raised our own kids. We just mm -hmm. have to sort of accept the way we did it and become kind of that power nucleus of mother and father where mm -hmm. uh, we know that my wife's kids or my kids can come to me if they need help or whatever. But I think it's, to answer your question, it, it's more of an insecurity thing. Like if you're feeling upset about something, but you think you're nuts in the head for even being insecure about it, I promise you, if you bring it up to your significant other, if they're open and, you know, open-minded and honest themselves, they'll be like, well, I don't think you understood what I meant. Like that's, that's not what I meant at all. So you shouldn't have any insecurities about that. I feel like in a relationship, everywhere you are insecure, the other partner should be lifting you up because they have some insecurities that they need lifting up from. 
So it's a constant battle of making sure that we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear some examples of what you've experienced with people in therapy that were things that were not, that became a problem if they brought them up, because that would be interesting to me. Well, I mean, I, mean, I think- <laughs> Oh, do you have like yeah. a, a, the next 24 hours? No, right. <laughs> right. Probably, probably too much of an open-ended. <laughs> I think. I mean, I think one thing though you said is is super important to highlight. Though you, you talked about like the things that are difficult to talk about sometimes are my insecurities, but sure. I think sometimes what we do and what we see, what we see couples and what we try to help them do is they focus on what triggered their insecurities. Mm-hmm. So they see like, well, my partner, you know, didn't call me, or they prioritized my their friend over me. And that's the problem. The problem was that external stimulus that triggered my insecurity and they, because they might not even be aware that that's what it's about. And when yeah. you show up saying what you're saying, Dean, is that like, God, like I felt really lonely or afraid when you show up that way and, and tell your partner what's going on, then they can hear it because you're not coming at them with your finger pointed. That's one thing we always Blaming, tell our couples yeah. is like, if you're talking to your partner about something that's difficult and it's like an energetic finger pointing at them that they've done something you, you, wrong, you, yeah. then there's a very low likelihood that conversation is going to go well. But if it begins with instead like, like a sense of like opening your heart and letting them into your suffering and what you're scared of, right? they tend to be pretty, pretty open to that, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think that we may be pretty decent at this in recovery because we're taught that any expectations lead to a resentment. Right. And resentment is one of those things that I forget the analogy, the resentments are like wanting to kill somebody, but drinking the poison yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's self-sabotage, but my wife has a very (laughs) great ability. I was probably, I'm the more emotional one out of the two of us. And I think at the beginning I was probably overly emotional because all those I got, you know, we were friends for a couple of years before we ended up together. So she knew me well uh, and knew most everything about me, but she had never been in a relationship with me. So when we started dating, I was probably over emotional, I guess, because I wasn't sure what was real, what was false. But mm-hmm. she has a wonderful way of when I used to do that, and I wouldn't come out her finger pointing necessarily, but I would come out her a little energetic, overly energetic, let's say, about something that was said or whatever. She just has a way of flattening it and saying, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. And the moment she says that, I don't know, it kind of brings some sort of honesty into the room. And then I'll well, calm, yeah. I'll calm down and say, well, what, I don't understand what you even meant by that anyway. And half the time, maybe more than half the time, it's my emotionally charged brain or some kind of thing that happened to me in the past that took her comment the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And yet I take it out on her. So once she explains what she meant, it always gets squashed. You know what I mean? It, it was pretty easy to work through. And it was mostly me that was doing it. I think she didn't have that issue. You know what I mean? I think she'd been in recovery a little bit longer than me. So I, I think that we, I don't know, we just, we know each other so well now that if I seem a bit off, she, she already sees it in my face anyway. <laughs> yeah. So she'll just ask me what's wrong. But I think that if you're open and honest about it, I mean, there's not anything that's so uncomfortable that the one of us, that one of us will not bring it up to the other. Yeah. And, and so you guys just have a very high level of vulnerability in your relationship, which is kind of like one of our biggest goals working with couples is just like, Okay, guys, how can we, I, I call it what, actually, I don't think this was for me. I read it in a book, but heart with ears. Like, how can you stay yeah. open hearted because couples come in and they see each other as the enemy. And and then a lot of, I mean, I will just say this, a lot of individuals do not have great self-care. 
they do medicate with whether it's food or alcohol or nicotine or you name it. So they, right. they're kind of closed off already to themselves, which obviously closes them off to their partner. And what I'm hearing you talk about your relationship is like, we're kind of like naked and raw <laughs> and yeah. really honest. And we're trying to be our best selves, but we also help each other to become our best selves because we're constantly growing. And and when uh, when I'm sitting with a couple and I'm I'm like, you guys, you're triggering each other. This is like areas of growth. They look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, this is Yeah, huge. I think <laughs> both men and women come into relationships with, uh, I hate using the word baggage, but it's a lot of walls that have been built up because they were trying sure. to defend themselves against something they expect will come at them again. And if you, if you don't try to break down the whole wall in two days, you're going to be okay. You just have to kind of chisel away mm -hmm. at it. Um, I exactly. think my, my wife went through some tougher things than I, that I went through in her, in her past. And I respected that and anything that came up that might've been something that I saw make her even facial expression change. You just ask her about it and be like, no matter what you say right now, I'm not going to judge you for it. You know, I think alcoholics are good at that. You know, we don't, we've gone through so much ourselves that we don't really judge anyone much anymore. We probably judge ourselves too much, but I mean, she could tell me anything that was absurd and, and she would be embarrassed to tell me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice of it. And I think relationships don't tend to do this. You know, we're, oh, we're taught, no. yeah. you know, we're taught in recovery that acceptance is the answer to everything. If we don't accept something, it's probably because some turnout we didn't want or, or somebody's not acting the way we want them to. If you can accept what's going on around you uh, and accept your, your significant other for exactly what they are and try to help them grow, then yeah. you're both going to be okay. Yeah. I, th I think you, oh, go ahead. you keep coming back to the, to two things that I, that are working in your relationship with your partner that I think are super important. And one is you keep talking about like, you ask each other what's going on, you know, curiosity that you're, that you're curious about it. And then you're accepting of each other's faults and or each other's struggles or each other's sufferings. And that's, and that's a thing that like, I don't know, I, I know like Tara and I still struggle. I, well, I will say I still struggle with that. I'm perfect. That, honey. Yeah. That there's times <laughs> where like sometimes the way her, her own suffering presents that I just like, I have a bad reaction to. You judge. You know, and I don't like, I'm not curious in that moment. I either like throw up a wall or I bail to another room. And it's just, right. it's not for me. And I see it with our couples. It's not instinctual to keep my guards open in those moments. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's, uh, you know, it's tough. But when you're doing it, like what you're saying, when you do that with your, with your wife and, you, and she does that with you, it's helpful. Yeah. It's I mean, it wasn't an overnight matter. I think that I tend to be a talker. Um, if you can't tell, but <laughs> she was sometimes shocked at what I would ask her because she had never discussed anything, whether it was a personal thing in our past, whether it was about sex, whatever it was about, I'm willing to ask anything. I guess I just don't get embarrassed easy, but she grew to like that because it, it, it brought down a lot of walls that both of us had. Um, and that may have been something she learned in it. And then for me, I'm not the greatest listener. I try to get better at it each year, but I'd have to wait to have her finish a thought because I think I knew what she was thinking before she even finished, you know, mm -hmm. it's a Northeast problem too. I think we talk so fast, yeah. but, but then, you know, like I remember when we were first dating, she thought if we got in an argument, you know, she'd almost be, you know, packing a bag and I'd be like, where are you going? You know, we just didn't agree on something. And, and that, 
turned into us really talking about everything and realizing that nothing's very large in the grand scheme of things. And I was the one who was over-emotional. Like, I would want to fight. And she would not do that. She was non-confrontational. And she would kind of just flatten it and just be like, I get where you're coming from, but, like, you, I'm not going to do that with you, you know? And then, like, who wants to get in a fight when the other person won't participate? <laughs> I know. You, you, yeah, you lose focus. It's not as shiny. <laughs> no, you start fighting about something that yeah. has something that you to do with something you were pissed about three months ago. It's got nothing to do with the argument that was just brought up, you know? Yeah. No. Well, I want to make sure that we do two things uh, here at the end. And, and the first is... I want to touch on your current book that's available, and then I know you're sure. working on a new project as well. So first, like, tell us about was that a red flag? Who's it written for? Like, you know, who's the audience that, that's listening that should, should go pick that up and, and check it out? Okay. The book, it's hard to describe how it started. Um, to give you a backdrop on it as quickly as I can here, we had a lot of people come to us and ask us about our relationship. We saw even a couple of couples like end their relationship mm. after coming to our wedding. Like it was bizarre. It, like we didn't think of ourselves as exceptional. We knew we worked well together, but we were approached by enough people, some of them who barely knew us, asking what it is that works about our relationship because they could tell it wasn't fake. Right. They, some, I don't even remember who, but a, a, a semi-family member said, why don't you write something? And I'm like, well, I'm not a writer. So <laughs> I just decided to write a bunch of chapters. And if it turned into something, it would turn into something. So to me, it was, the audience was anybody. Right. Anybody that was either in a relationship that wanted to better their relationship or somebody who needed to get out of one that was already in one that they made, you know, ignored some red flags going into it. So I wanted to write a book that was about a bunch of different subtle red flags. Not like the one, not ones like jealousy or anger, ones that are, you know, pretty glaring. Right. It was the ones that we overlook um, initially. So I almost made it in a workbook sense. It's 12 short chapters pointing out those same subtle red flags I was talking about mm-hmm. that we overlook when we first start dating somebody. Uh, that either we assume we can live with what, you know, what we're seeing or we can change them in some way. But when in reality, we should probably be changing ourselves. Um, yeah. that's kind of why I wrote it. And I think that I want them to, to read that book, realize that their life is short, you know, that they, they should be able to have some abundance in life, some joy and be with the right person that makes them a better person, makes them grow, mm-hmm. makes them have peace in their life. I mean, that's what we're all kind of seeking, right? Yep. So at the end of each of these short chapters, the workbook part I'm talking about is that it has questions at the end of each chapter that make you apply it to your own relationship. And that way they come out of that book. Cause I think a lot of times I'm a self-help book type reader. I read it and I only retain about 5% of what I read. Yeah. Whereas in a question type format, when you have to apply it to yourself, I feel like, I hope anyway, that you walk away from this short book and learn something about the relationship you're in or learn something about yourself. Great. Absolutely. One of the biggest things we do in our sessions is uh we have like a 90-page workbook, um, but we have our couples sit there and ask each other questions and even take down notes and write notes because it's so funny when, uh, you know, we keep getting better and better at, at this as we go. We keep learning from our couples and from, you know, our own growth and education and all of that. But we would like, you know, set these goals in the first couple of sessions and then like in midway through our program, we'd be like, okay, guys, we're going to review the goals. And they would be like, oh, we forgot what our goals were. 
And I was like, ding, ding, ding. Okay, you guys, you're going to write down your own goals with the help of the therapist (laughs) to help you guys qualify those goals. But really answering those questions like in front of a therapist or even at home when they're engaging that, it's so much more powerful than just talking or reading without any other action to that. So I I love the question format. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And if you, and if you've probably found that if only one of the people in that relationship is cooperative, it it doesn't work, you know, it has to be on, on both both sides. People got to be bought in. Right. Oh yeah. And I think that's the the problem with a lot of relationships is that, you know, a lot of people, I, I say in the book that relationships shouldn't be a lot of people say in life, relationships are hard or they take a lot of work. Like, I honestly don't agree with that now that I'm in this stage of my life. I'm not saying everything's always easy, but if you're in a relationship that's open and honest, it shouldn't be a lot of work. Like our whole lives are work, raising kids and doing careers and all that kind of thing. The last thing I want to do is work on my relationship when I come home. You know, you can avoid the work by being honest first. Yeah, but sometimes like couples need assistance in getting to that place where they where they can be open and honest. You know, one or both of them sometimes, you know, just have blocks from you know past relationships, past things that have happened to them, and like how do you? You know, I definitely think it 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 helped for you and and your wife that you guys were both in in a program in recovery that focuses so much on honesty, honesty. You know. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think going back to that statement of relationships being a lot of work, anybody who says that to me, I always want to ask them, well, okay, is it you that's putting in more work? And almost a hundred percent of the time, the person who says that is the one who's putting in the most work, you know? So if you put them in therapy, I imagine it's probably going to be that other person that needs to, and sometimes not even their own fault. It could be, you know, past relationships that made them close down or or put up a wall. But I think unless both are are working at it to become more communicative, you know, I think that it's, it's going to fail. And those are the red flags that if the other person isn't willing to do those things to make it better or to change uh, how well you communicate, it's, it's probably going to fail. Can't work harder than the other person. I say that often. Correct. (laughs) Well then, and then now looking forward, um, what is, I know you mentioned that you're working on a new book as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, that one's much more about recovery. Um, Though recovery does seem to blanket a little bit of my other book, but uh, the new one uh, is called Finding Myself Sober. It's uh, coincidentally 12 chapters again, and it has questions at the end of each chapter, but I think that's just my structure now. Mm -hmm. But completely different in material. It speaks of the, the 12 principles that were paramount in changing my life in recovery. People often talk about the 12 steps in a, in a program of recovery, which are, trust me, they're necessary to, to get sober, but there are principles that one learns or achieves during these 12 steps that aren't talked about as often. And this whole book, these 12 chapters are all about those 12 principles that I was able to achieve in sobriety. And I try to use that with other alcoholics that I work with to help them understand that as they work the steps in a 12 step program, they're also achieving these 12 principles because a lot of alcoholics come in with absolutely no self-esteem or self-worth left. So if you point out to them where they're achieving these things, even when they can't see that they're not, it's a big building block to them becoming more self-aware of themselves. Well, great. Well, thank you, Dean, so much for uh, for coming on today. I, th- I think this yeah. like really moved in a lot of really like super positive directions and in a lot of different ways for couples. So, you know, thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for writing your books and, and you know, putting your ideas out there. Yeah. Where can people buy your books? 
Obvious, just like Amazon, but yeah, Amazon's the best play. But you can go to FultonBooks.com, is who uh, the publisher okay. was. But the easiest way is to go to Amazon, and you can get it uh, either in paperback or ebook or Kindle format. Um, so it's out there. I love it. I appreciate that. This, this, I've you know, I've talked to some people about the book in the past, and uh, this has been one of my favorite, if not the favorite, interview I've had because it really uh. dove into so many different aspects of relationships, which I really think is. Paramount, but you you folks really kind of dug deep on the alcohol side, well, I just, which usually it's split. It's either about recovery or it's about relationships. This one intertwined both, which makes it more interesting to me. Well, that, and, and I just feel like we learn from each other. And I mean, EJ and I started our couples counseling business because we got married, pregnant with twins. Twins had colic. I was divorcing him every five days. I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's two trained <laughs> professionals that are like, I mean, what? better way to like learn and empower others by having to go through something yourself. And so, you know, all of our guest speakers kind of have gone through this personal experience and change and want to share it with others, which is kind of exactly how we did our own relationship. And now we have this amazing practice. And so, yeah, I'm just really, I really appreciate you sharing your story. Uh, And yeah, no problem at all. I I think alcoholism is a very misunderstood illness or disease anyway. So I always kind of want to bring some light into that darkness. And uh, as I've told EJ too, is I've got a daughter that's at Texas State now studying psychology and wants to become a therapist. And I can't think of a better person to go down that road because she gets to see the worst and the best of me, including uh, the growth between my wife and myself and and seeing a healthy relationship, you know, finally, but then discovering and going through her own trials. Um, I'm really glad she's going that direction because initially it was my direction too until I went a different um, way in college. That's incredible too. I mean, because we talk so many, you know, so many of our couples are also parents, obviously, you know, and it's not like we have to be perfect, you no. know. In fact, if our if our kids see us go through really difficult things and how we do and how we get through it, I mean, th- that's role modeling, right? And it we we all fall yeah. down, right? And and it's just showing them that we can get back up. And so- Oh, and we have found that, sorry, I, see, I could stand forever, but we have found that the couples who grew up in kind of like a conflict avoidant home where parents didn't fight with each other and like only happiness was encouraged, like they are probably some of the most dysfunctional couples we've worked with. <laughs> so I'm like, hey guys, if you're not your best- I didn't know where you are going with that, but yeah, that's a funny answer. But yeah, no, I would- <laughs> I would agree with that, you know? Absolutely. I think we're pretty broad. Like, we're yeah. pretty open in this family. You're going to know yeah. if something's <laughs> bothering one of us, which is fine by me because yeah. at least it's at least it's honest, even if it isn't always completely, uh, you know, we're, we're functionally dysfunctional, I guess. <laughs> there you we go. Put, I like to say we put the fun in dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dean. We appreciate you being a part of the show. We'll definitely uh, put up in the show notes. Everybody yep. can check out a link to uh, to to grab your book. Was we'll, that a red? We'll flag? definitely keep our eyes open for your next one coming out. Uh, our audience, we just want to kind of thank you all for for listening. As always, please, you know, the best way we can get our word out there is for you to just tell people about our show and and share with your friends. And uh, you know, our goal is just to help people personally grow and help their relationships get better. Uh, You can always check out our social media, 
uh, where we're posting relationship habits and all kinds of good information. Lots of videos. Instagram, we are at relationship underscore renovation. Facebook, we are at he said, she said counseling. And you can always just uh, hit our website, he said, she said counseling.com. We also have our relationship renovation at home program that you guys can check out as well. So, uh, yeah, thanks again, Dean. And thank you, Dean. see you later, everybody out there. Yeah, thank you both. Bye, the guys. pleasure was all mine. I mean, it was great. Thank you. Bye bye, Dean. All right, see you. Bye. Me and you just singing on the train. Me and you listening to the rain. Me and you, we are the same. Me and you have all the fame we need. Indeed, you and me are we. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.